Hello, everybody. It is, let's see, Wednesday, the 25th of October. Let me center myself here a little bit. Uh, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this program. I appreciate you guys joining me. We will go for about 90 minutes, probably a little bit less, talking about the latest and greatest inside the world of MMA, combat, sports, and whatever else is on your mind, I suppose. Uh, best place to get your questions in, of course, is going to be uh, on MMA Fighting, where this window here is embedded. Questions that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. And uh, yes, I don't know if I have anything formally to announce today. I don't think that I do. Just trying to remember from forgetting any housekeeping duties. I don't think so. Um, so without further ado, subscribe to MMA Fighting. You can do that with hitting the button below and give this video a thumbs up. I always appreciate that when you do. Uh, okay. Without further ado, let's get to the questions, shall we? Oh, I forgot to say what, what we could talk about today. Uh, lots of things you can get to, by the way. There's UFC 217 that is slowly kind of warming up, but there's been a lot of discussion about the nature of GSP's popularity. I've been talking about it on Twitter a fair amount. Plus, we're off the heels of UFC Gdansk, or Dansk, cover it's pronounced. Uh, Bellator 185 ratings are out, and they are terrible. So there's that as well. Uh, anything you want to get to like that and more, best place to do that, of course, from MMAfighting.com, blah, blah, blah. Uh, today's... It's not, it's not really a sponsorship. In fact, when I say not really, I mean not at all. Uh, but I'm going to drink this today. The buy. This is Brasilia Blueberry. And it has a 30 milligrams of caffeine. Not much. Normally, my pre-workout, if I don't have to go to bed early, will have three to 400 milligrams. So... Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, okay. Hey, Luke, do you feel the... Uh, this is not green, but it's first. It's interesting. Do you feel the Maymac fight had any lasting impact on combat sports, particularly UFC? Money fights were being discussed prior, but it seems to me in months after Maymac, it has escalated into the bizarre territory. Uh, the mere idea that the lightweight champion could fight anyone other than the interim champion seems surreal. And this is a very real possibility, even talks of him fighting Paulie. Has the Maymac event normalized the idea of meaningless contests and spectacles occurring at the highest level of sports? I don't think it normalized it. I mean, let me be careful with that, actually. Did it normalize it? Um It certainly made it more palatable under certain circumstances. It certainly made it, uh, I've discussed the Overton window before. The Overton window is this sort of concept about socially, if you fit all the topics inside of this uh, metaphorical window and you exclude a lot of other topics, whatever whatever's inside is what is acceptable for public discourse. The kinds of opinions you can hold um, without you know fear of much retribution and so the overton window uh, it's sort of now it's in, it used to be outside the overton window to even suggest such a thing now it's very much inside right because it's sort of popular um so i guess there is some degree of normalization the question is whether it's any lasting normalization 
or whether it's some sort of damaging normalization. I think that part is a little bit unclear. Certainly MMA is on a bit of a downswing, not a bit, a clear downswing. Um, but it's not clear how low that will go. It's not clear how long that will last. It's not clear what a rebound might look like or when that might happen. Um, so I, I don't want to attribute that merely to that fight. I think that fight was a byproduct of a larger climate. It may have kicked it into even higher gear, given the craziness of what we saw and sort of how the way it can jog an imagination and the way which can make it seem that the normal course of business seems so quaint. I would actually say Conor McGregor's career path more generally is one where um, is one where the established norms, not the rules necessarily, because there's not necessarily a lot of rules, but the established norms of how business is done are totally exploded. And I think in the wake of what he has been able to do by arm twisting promoters in a way that no one had ever arm twisted promoters before, because you know, whatever big Rousey's popularity was, she was very much a team player. And Connor is too, but in a very different way. Um, going around those established norms has really reordered people's priorities, or I think in many ways made the ordinary seem a little bit lackluster. And that's the that's the risk you run. Um, not really with one big fight like that, but having a general, I think, posture towards the absurd. It it undermines um, the value and the what shouldn't be quaint normalcy of normalcy itself. It shouldn't be viewed as quaint. It should be viewed as, um, you know, this main artery by how we have this product delivered to us. And I think um, Connor has really upended things, not merely for himself and for the business, but uh, this had this network effect where now everyone around, not everyone, but, you know, Certainly, I mean, John Jones, before his suspension at UFC 214, spoke openly about how Connor kind of changed the way he thought. There was a certain prevailing wisdom about what was good, what was bad, what was, you know, suitable at certain junctures of your career. And Connor went and reordered a lot of that. And, um, you know, I think the other part is just sort of the nature of the MMA fan base that we've learned through this whole GSP process that they are getting churned and burned. And then if you can create a new crop of stars, problem basically solved as long as those stars are around like i think if they could develop a new star in the next six months to a year it would be great it would be great i i think a lot of the problems that we're experiencing would not be nearly as pronounced um but you know you take that churning and burning you know basically turnover with him reordering perceptions among casual observers as well as fighters themselves and it i think it leads to a lot of malaise uh, there you go. Uh, speaking of, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss any part of that question. Speaking of money and fighting, what's up with Dana White claiming no women in sports make as much as women uh, fighters do, UFC women? On um, the most recent Tough episode, Dana White visited the Tough House and told the fighters this. He also told them that he has women fighters that make over a million dollars a fight. I can't help but feel likely he was blatantly lying to them, and I can't believe this was actually aired on TV. There has to be a higher grossing female athletes on average compared to UFC fighters. For the record, which female fighters other than Ronda have made over a million in a UFC fight? I don't even think Misha Tate has. Um, yeah, I don't think many of them have, probably. Maybe, maybe in check because she was on that 205 card. Maybe. Um, and obviously Rousey has. Beyond that, it's not exactly clear to me 
Uh, yeah, I mean, so look, it's women's sports is sort of a bit of a double-edged, or it's 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 got a lot of different facets here. Clearly, this is wrong if you look even merely at women's tennis, right? Uh, women's tennis, they obviously make significant earnings there. I'm not exactly sure what women's golf makes, but I think through sponsorship, pretty, I'm going to guess that uh, women's golf at the highest level, you know, when UFC is probably pretty much the highest level, they're going to make more over there. Uh, there might be another uh, uh, set of examples. I'm not exactly sure what WNBA salaries look like. Probably not that great at the middle to low end. Probably pretty decent at the high end. So that's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, and, you know, professional women's soccer is always the sort of developmental sport of tomorrow, even if the U.S. women's national team does really good ratings when they compete in tournaments of significance. But you can generally look around and say there's a lot more opportunities for male athletics generally and for higher paying male athletics. So I think there's a, you know, and the UFC is relatively egalitarian nature where, you know, they have what will have three divisions of women's who are making pretty comparable to what the men make uh, in many respects. I mean, this is sort of a point of pride for them. Um, but, you know, that that this is, what did he say? No women in sports make as much as UFC women fighters do. I mean, this is clearly not a true statement. I don't know exactly what he means by that. If he means by league or by some sort of league average or I don't know. I don't know exactly what he, he – there might be some kind of – the UFC is sort of very – used to be very good about, like, twisting certain statistics um, in non-functioning ways to make it look like they were comparable to other sports leagues under these weird measurements. They had a very keen habit of doing this six to seven years ago. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's one of those things that has resurfaced or something else, but, but even just women's tennis totally explodes that. Uh, which sports make more on average? Top women fighting three times a year make more than soccer players, WNBA players. Outside of tennis, the UFC has a right to be around the top, if I'm not mistaken. He was saying the average female UFC fighter made more than the average athlete in women's sports. I would like to see some citation for that. It could be true. I'd be willing to believe it. But without citation, hard to say if that's true. Someone asked me about, on the last chat, you railed against the McGregor-Malinaji boxing fight. You were explicit about displeasure to be mild with fans who supported the idea with media that supports it. However, don't you feel at least a little bit responsible? No, I certainly do not. I should remind you that your live chat beat MMA fighting as a whole, saturated the airwaves with Mayweather-McGregor. Yep. You even ridiculed those of us who are sick and tired of this boxing match. Uh, I'm not sure which one you're referring to. Do you have any remorse? No, I do not. Would you have some remorse if McGregor Malinaji becomes a reality? I certainly would not. And I have a written, detailed explanation in there, which I encourage you to check out. Um, I mean, basically what it comes down to is you have to understand something about the nature of the business and media. Part of it, you have to make editorial decisions about what is important to cover, what is not important to cover, if it is important to cover, how much. You have to make all kinds of calibrations and judgment calls as an editor, as a reporter, as a writer, as a podcaster, whatever. What is the appropriate amount of coverage? What do people want to hear? How much should I give people what they want to hear? How much should I make it about what's more important in the world generally? Uh, how does that run up against my ability to generate an audience? Because those two questions are inextricably linked. Hey, do I talk about a lot of things that people want to talk about? Or do I talk about really important things that like five people care about? Yes, I'm doing more of a new service on this side, but no one's really listening. So maybe there's a mix of that I can have. 
to do a little bit of both. In the case of Mayweather McGregor, um, I'm sure there's any number of criticisms that people can make about what MMA Fighting did, MMA Junkie did, um, what the writers and reporters who didn't cover it didn't do. So sure, I mean, whatever the specific nature of your criticisms, I'd be happy to hear them. But this sounds like a, a general blanket um, pushback. And to an extent, I suppose that's okay. But here's the reality of like a lot of media coverage just sort of peel back the curtain. It's a response to what consumer demand is already there. Um, Mayweather McGregor seemed absurd to me. It always was absurd to me. At some point you had to make peace with it because it was the train had left the station. You go back and watch my early chat with Errol Hawani when we reacted to it, when we had the two man screen, you know, it's a craziness. It's a crazy thing. And so um, we're just trying to, you know, you, ha you have an obligation, I think to cover it once it's out there. Uh, unless it's a truly egregious, immoral thing, like the kind of stuff where you know you have Japanese grandmothers fighting Gabby Garcia in Japan. But, um, but that aside, the reality is you're responding to consumer demand. Now, I chastised, you know, Leonard Ellerbe and Dana White for being like, "Well, we made this fight because the fans demanded it," which to me sounded like a cop out. Because if the fight's bad, you're going to say, "Well, you you asked for it." So at some point, you have to make an editorial judgment uh, on the news side or a business judgment on the other side about what kind of content you're capable of putting out. I think we put out a lot of content that was critical of it, outright negative in some cases. We put out a lot of content that was absolutely cheerleader-ish, I'm sure, as well, um, which is probably one of the more myopic points of, M of MMA media generally. You know, this kind of thing can happen because you mostly have fans who volunteer to write and they try to take on a journalistic role and there can be some conflicts over the course of someone's tenure. I'm, not exempt from that at all. I'm sure I've done it a thousand times. Um, and um, so, so okay, so I've made that point. But here, here's the point. It's like everyone seems to think there are, how do I explain this? There are plenty of criticisms of media that are really, really valid, really valid. And that's true of any kind of media, whether it's MMA media in this particular case, whether it's political media in another case, whether it is um, YouTube vloggers in a third. There's any number of ways to make a, a, a reasonable and responsible and fair, even if it's a heated criticism of what the kind of coverage has been. The problem is that Mayweather McGregor really was pushed from enormous fan demand. You know, this notion that MMA fighting has this ability to like dictate fan preferences, it's that's not really how media works. Media is more of a response to fan preferences. Now that can there can be exceptions to that, of course. They can, you know, certain media coverage can launch a career, it can ruin a career, it can turn heads, it can it can repulse people, depending on what it is, of course. But uh, day in, day out, the majority of it is, what is it that the world out there cares about? Let's go find that, rather than this is what you should care about. It's a mix of the two, but it's a lot more the former than the latter. Um, and so I don't think it's possible for me to say, well, you know, <laughs> even MMA media collectively was the one that forced interest in this fight. If anything, they were the ones being like, uh, I mean, some were cheerleading it, but a lot weren't. And the boxing media was totally against it. Did that end up stopping it? No, that locomotive just kept on running. So, you know, if you have a particular set of specific criticisms related to the nature of the coverage rather than covering it at all, um, sure, let's hear it. Let's hear what those are. But uh, I don't think we're powerful enough, and I certainly know I'm not powerful enough, to dictate fan preferences to the point where we're the ones who whipped up this atmosphere. The atmosphere was already there. Um 
do we contribute to it in some meaningful way potentially but it, you know we could have boycotted that thing would have kept going so just to consider what that means that's the, the media was powerless if anything people often ascribe a lot too much way too much power to the media Easy to blame them, though, right? Till and UFC Liverpool. Look, what's next for Darren Till? Is he now a legitimate top 10 fighter after dispatching Cerrone? Should be. If you were his manager, would you be pushing him towards the Perry Ponzinibbio winner, or is there another route to take? A lot of uh, a lot of the welterweight division right now are matched up, but based on the performance on Saturday, let's not forget what he did to Robbie Lawler. He couldn't do three months earlier. Um, then Till could pretty much pick... Anyone he wanted to fight. So far, the best matchups already made in that division are, as it stands today, Masvidal Woodley. And it seems like Till wants maybe the winner of that, but in particular, Wonderboy. Excuse me, Masvidal versus Wonderboy, not Woodley. RDA versus Lawler. Maya versus Covington. Condit versus Magny. Perry versus Ponzinibbio. Usman versus Meek. Now, personally, the one I wanted to see and advocated for on Twitter would be Till versus Usman. Kamaru Usman and uh, I believe Ariel Hawani tweeted about this. Like they, they, people just don't want to touch this guy, you know. And a lot of people don't want to touch Darren Till either. Cerrone stepped up and did it, but they I mean they really don't want anything to do with Kamaru Usman because he's not yet necessarily a celebrity, and uh, he is a tough fight, a very tough fight. He might be your next champion, to be honest. Kamaru Usman's a beast, but people are saying the exact same thing now about Darren Till. Darren Till also, by the way. A huge welterweight, a huge welterweight. And if he can find a way to stifle the wrestling of Usman, Usman striking has come a long way too, so I don't think he'd necessarily be out of it. Plus, he hits very hard. But to me, that's the fight to make. Now, you wouldn't make it for any number of reasons. As a, as it's noted, Usman versus Meek is already booked. Um, it looks like Till's got his side set somewhere else, and you'd potentially be killing off a contender in doing that because you might think that, Till might eventually challenge for a title one day, and maybe Usman would too. Why have them fight early on and derail someone's efforts there? But that's the kind of fight the UFC was built on. That's the kind of fight I like to see. That's the kind of fight that is hard to make under a lot of other circumstances. You know, tune-up fights are great. Super fights are great. They all have a place in the sport. But when you're on the rise and you're pushing and you're looking for that validation, because that's the early part of the rise is when you people think you can't meet these challenges and you can just continue to meet them and meet them and meet them and meet them. Um, and you look good every single time, and you're just blowing people away on that rise to the top. That's I've often said that's the most exciting time in a fighter's career. So give him exciting, tough challenges. Let's see who comes out on top. If Till can't beat Usman, then he can't beat you know whoever will be the eventual champion anyway. Styles make fights, but you get, you get what I'm saying. And same for Usman. If he can't beat Darren Till, then he needs to go back to the drawing board. But to me, that would be an incredibly exciting fight between top contenders in a very, very exciting division. And as you've noted, the welterweight division has some awesome fights coming up, really worth paying attention to. He says, uh, only Woodley and Gunnar Nelson, and obviously Nick Diaz, are unmatched in the top 15 as well as Cerrone and Till. Is it important to keep him away from a Maya Covington Magni style grappler and give him a striker, or is it time for him to fight the best? I think another top contender. That could be Ponzinibbio, that could be Perry, that could be Woodley, that could be Masvidal, that could be Usman, that could be somebody else. But any of those would be great. It's really hard to go wrong with any of these. Even a Covington, which is much more of a dedicated wrestling challenge. How good is Darren Till's takedown defense really after, you know, with somebody who's going to doggedly go after it and has a lot of really good adaptive folk style takedowns? You would want to see that. That's a test you have to answer. 
Also, I am sure about I am unsure, excuse me, about how much you know about Liverpool. Not a whole lot, but it is a city that is fanatical with football, soccer, and combat sports. The support of Till will be gaining more momentum now. And hopefully the UFC pick up on this like they did with McGregor in Ireland. It could lead to something special if Till keeps on performing. Hopefully UFC Liverpool is on the cards. I would love to see it. I would love to see it. I hear nothing but, uh, I won't say nothing, but I hear a lot of good things about Liverpool. And Till seems like the genuine article. That Scouse accent is amazing. Um, so many famous British musicians who have had that Scouse accent. I was going through some old YouTube footage the other day. I found some crazy ones. My brother used to live in England, so he sort of put me on to all these musicians that, that have it. My brother lived in London for four years, which, granted, they don't, you know, it's not Liverpool, but visited Liverpool many times. Anyway, um, yeah, I, look, I, I really think that one of the major changes UFC needs to make going forward is a lot of them I think they need to make. I think the whole brand needs a bit of a refresh, but I think beyond that, um, they need to really pay much more attention to regional needs and realities like this whole thing about hey uh, i was looking up old promos for uh for um gsp versus hardy old one and i was looking it up and it was like the announcement of it's like you know um the ufc returns to new jersey now granted this is new jersey prudential center new in newark which is right outside new york so it's almost like a very similar thing but you know back when the ufc could put Anderson Silva on at the middle of the afternoon against Demi and Maya in Abu Dhabi and sell 500,000, maybe whatever location you go to doesn't matter so much. On the other hand, uh, when your interim title fight does 120,000 pay-per-view buys, maybe it's time to start taking regional support a lot more seriously, making sure Stipe fight somewhere in Ohio or preferably Cleveland, making sure that Darren Till gets a chance to perform for Liverpool. Connor got that with the UFC Dublin card. Now, there were many, many guys from SBG and Ireland on that card, which, of course, created the general atmosphere. It wasn't just Connor, but obviously he was you know, the biggest component there. These kinds of moments can be huge in the buildup of a fighter, and I, I really feel like adhering to that to the extent possible is very very important. It's hard to book around these guys sometimes because what if Darren Till falls out and you know there's a lot of problems that can happen. But I just feel like as the UFC needs to get smarter about how it promotes to make sure it's still effectively promoting, that's got to be an absolutely critical critical consideration. Regional value, who has it, how to milk it, what it is, um, you know, and and and. And beginning to book a calendar because as i mentioned before the way it's typically done as i understand it is the operation side is like hey we're gonna go to phoenix book a card it's like all right well who do we have rather than hey let's stipe has a title defense coming up or you know something like that let's go to cleveland and then we'll book around we'll book around that um that would be kind of important plus as the further they move away from television um, and into online, you know, broadcast, the more you can move around a title and the more you can move around big fights. So if you're less dependent on pay-per-view, presumably, now this is a big if, then you can move around a little bit more. And so I think going to those places is really, now going to Poland, it has its importance for the brand. And they had Kovalkiewicz on the card as well as Blahovich and um, I guess some others, but uh, Pajota, 
but it's not the same. It's just not the same. Okay. Musasi's Bellator debut. Musasi got the win, but it was quite a bumpy ride. What do you think of his debut? His debut raised some questions regarding high-profile UFC fighters' transition to Bellator. Why do you think many of them struggle? Yeah, I scored that fight for Shlomenko, if I'm being honest. Um, I can understand a call for Musasi. I don't think it's in any way horrible. I was a little surprised. <clears throat> Pardon me. I was a little surprised that not even one had it. Hold on. They cowling me. I was a little surprised. Um, it wasn't split. It was unanimous. But he got lucky, man. I mean, you know, not lucky in the sense of a robbery, but that was a generous reading, it seemed to me, of, of what had happened in that contest. It opened up a couple of problems. I mean, there's so many problems that this thing raises. One is why do these guys struggle? I think because people just criminally underrate everyone in Bellator. Bellator's divisions are not nearly as big. They're not nearly as stacked. But their top guys are really good. It's just, it's just how it works. Um, Shlomenko is a flawed fighter, but when he performs up to his abilities, um, you can see what he can do. He can create problems for people. He doesn't really beat the very best guys, uh, and he lost badly to Tito, but he wasn't really a 205-er, and Shlomenko's good. I don't know how else to tell you. He's, they, they, everyone's like, these guys are Bellator and good. Yes, they are. They're very, very good. They're clearly very good. Um, look at the struggles Lorenz Larkin is having. He just ran through Neil Magny. Um, you know, so you get the idea. I think that's part of it. Um, but well, the interesting fact about it, which no one's really talking about, is the three-round fight. Now, their main events that are non-title are three rounds. And I think there's probably a couple of reasons why they do that. One, going back to cops as soon as possible might be a priority for them, given how the ratings are. The ratings were bad, man. They were really bad. And the other problem is that Scott Coker said, well, if we go to that, we can't go back. I don't know why that's true. I don't know why that's true, but but the reason why he says that is because consider their challenge. What really this showed is Bellator has a bit of an identity crisis right now. Crisis might be a strong word, but who are they? Yes, they're the number two, but who are they? What is their brand? What kind? What are they known for? Um, what is it that they do that's a value add in the market? And what you look at it is, if you're going to be booking Kimbo versus Dada, Rest in peace uh, for Kimbo. But if you're going to be booking those kinds of fights, you can't have five-round fights as main events. It would be a disaster. It was a disaster at three in many ways, even though it did really good numbers. Um, if you're going to have Chael versus Chuck, you can't really have a five-round fight with that. It's got to be three. But if you want to have Musasi versus Flamenco and Phil Davis versus Linton Vassal and Ryan Bader versus... Well, no, I guess it's Ryan Bader versus Linton Vassal. That kind of thing... Well, then it makes more sense to have a five-round fight, but they have to sort of navigate this decision in terms of self-identification as a brand. Like, what is it we're really going to be in the business of? But I don't, I don't know that it's that complicated decision. I don't know why Coker is saying, well, if we go this way, we can't go back. Why can't you just say if you have two competitors over 35 and they mutually agree to three rounds, you just do it three rounds? Or screw it. Here, you know what? I'm, I say so. You're having a three-round fight. Sign the, sign the dotted line. We're not offering either of you a five-round fight. Promoter's discretion. Big deal. Big deal. I don't really think that would create any more confusion than is already there. 
Uh, I guess folks would have to ask a little bit, hey, is tonight five or three? And maybe that might be a noble. But I think if the broadcast really got out there and told people, if they made a point of noting it, getting the word out, you'd probably be okay. Uh, yeah, it'd be better to have uniform standards, which is what the UFC has. But um, but it, it just sort of it just sort of examines that this moment Bellator doesn't really know what it is and is still trying to figure that out because if that fight had gone five rounds for Musasi and Shlomenko, boy, I was not looking too good for uh, the dream catcher there, was it? Shlomenko was stuffing all the takedowns and and was landing pretty hard in that third round. And I'm surprised the fight even got to go you know past the second, to be honest. That eye looked swollen shut to me. So credit to Gagard Musasi for being as tough as he is and gutting that out. And he got the win, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not going to argue with it too much, even though I didn't see it that way, but that was bad. And do you guys see these ratings? Look at these ratings. These are crazy ratings. I wanted to hold on to this because I thought it was just wild. And this is something we all kind of need to discuss. I have some theories about this, but here's what it says. Prior to parent company, this is from Sherdog. Prior to parent, excuse me, prior to parent company Viacom hiring Strike Force. Uh, founder Scott Coker to replace Bellator founder and CEO Bjorn Rebney in June of 2014. The promotion had averaged 703,000 live viewers over 37 broadcasts on Spike. In 2015, the first full year under Coker's leadership, that number jumped to 746,000. So he took over in 2015, they took a bump up. And that was, of course, the same year they had, I think, um, several Kimbo fights. Before the present downward trend in viewership, which has intensified in late 2017, with the last five Bellator MMA broadcasts on Spike drawing less than 600,000 live viewers. Now, there's a big... Bellator is currently averaging 669,000. And in so in 2015, 2014, they averaged 703. 2015, they jumped up 746. 2016, they dropped a little bit, but still were above the 2014 level at 712, and now they're currently under 700,000. Now, we'll see how many, how many more events do they have this year, and what are they? They got the Penn State one coming up the day before UFC 185. Um, we'll see how that does. Um, Bellator. But here's what they have left in the year, as I understand it. They've got Bellator 185, which already happened. They got Bellator 186, November 3rd. Bellator 187 in Ireland, so that's going to be on tape delay. And I think they already lost their major headliner, so AJ McKee is filling in. Everyone else, they got baby slice on that, so we'll see how that does. But he hasn't turned into much of a star. Bellator 188 is going to be Pitbull versus Vaishal 2, but this will be in Israel, literally. Um then you've got Bellator 189, December 1. That's in Thackerville. That's got Julia Budd versus Arian Bianco-Cove, Coway, how do you pronounce it? Co. Now it's also got Rafael Lovato Jr., Chris Honeycutt, Hisaka Kato, Ch Chidi Njikawani, but no real big names. Then you've got Bellator 190, December 9th. This is going to be in Italy. And that's going to be headlined by Carvalho versus Alessio Sakara. Bellator 191, December 15th. This is supposed to be Daily versus Venom. We'll see how that goes. Nothing official there. Uh, all just rumors at this point. So you can see it's not, you know, they got a lot of overseas shows, which are going to be on tape delay. It's going to be hard to promote here locally. They don't have a ton of names on the end of this calendar schedule that have a lot of drawing power. Um, 
I mentioned this if you watched after the beat when I hosted a few weeks ago. I had mentioned that uh, Derek Thompson wrote an article for the Atlantic. I finally linked it out today. Um, and let me pull that up here just for a second, if I may. He has argued that, you know, he's talking about NFL ratings and NFL ratings are down, but really everyone's ratings are down. This is what he says. Let me pull this up here. Uh, ratings are down for everything except for cable news. Out of 78 primetime broadcast series that aired in both 2016 and 2017, only one, ABC's The Bachelor, increased viewership among people under 50. Just about every live sport is dealing with the same problem. NASCAR, although praised by Trump for its fealty to the national anthem, opened its most recent playoffs with the lowest ratings ever. Last year, the NBA had some of its lowest rated games ever. These facts cry out for a broader structural explanation. Uh, five years ago, there were hardly a million cord cutter households. Today, there are an estimated 7 million. That's an exodus from pay television the size of Virginia and New Jersey combined. It's inconceivable that this would have no effect whatsoever on NFL ratings. Rather, football is the most buoyant cargo aboard a sinking ship. Now, there's some is other issues with um, NASCAR where they're having declining attendance. Truth is, this year, uh, up until the last quarter, Bellator and, and, and UFC, in particular UFC, had pretty good attendance issues, even if they had some modest ratings. The question I want to see asked is, is how much are we conflating with a decline in television ratings and overall decline in product enthusiasm. I'm not confused. There is an overall decline in product enthusiasm for all of these sports, MMA included. How much of that is merely a function of people like me? You, I'm watching all these events, but no one's counting my numbers because I'm watching on YouTube TV or Sling. Um, so I don't get counted as part of a household, I don't believe. All right, let's get back to these questions. DSP versus Bisping, a couple of questions. There are reports of slow sales and that the new generation of fans doesn't have a strong relationship with GSP. Do you think the UFC overestimated GSP's drawing power? In retrospect, which GSP comeback fight would you prefer and which fight do you think would do the most pay-per-view sales? Bisping, Woodley, Silver, Nick, and Nate. Boy, this is a really interesting question. That's one I've been doing a lot of coverage on. I tweeted about it yesterday. I have a new video of my own YouTube channel about it. Talked about it on my radio show yesterday. This is a fascinating topic to me because it caught me completely by surprise. In fact, I admitted I was wrong because I kind of scoffed. Remember prior to um, the December, I believe December 2016 card between Holloway and Pettis. It was in Toronto, you recall. In fact, the fights were so good, they repurposed them for Fox Television and everyone loved them. Remember that? Or four of them anyway, four of the fights. Because they were amazing. Um, but there was talk of GSP potentially coming back before that, and it didn't happen. And then it was leaked out that UFC executives, or just sort of made public at some point, and um, you know the Wrestling Observer Newsletter had done some reporting to this effect, as well as others, that UFC executives had done some internal research with the common pay-per-view buying fan, and that... Um, there was a wide swath of them who either didn't know who GSP was or were didn't necessarily consider him a popular attraction because they were unfamiliar with his work. Now that to me says a lot of different things. Um, one is in answering your questions, do you think the over the UFC overestimated GSP's drawing power? 
if that report is accurate, and I have reason to believe that it is, then they knew, they knew that there was a bit of an uphill climb to make. That doesn't mean you don't do business with GSP because you have to wonder how much of that can you recapture, how much of that can you rekindle through an education process, how much of that is salvageable. I would imagine some, how much I don't know. But what's crazy about what's happening is that, number one, I think you have to acknowledge the UFC knew better about this than we did. Number one, they, they were right. They had a point. They were right. They did some homework and they found out some interesting findings. Shocking findings, but interesting and, and turned out to be correct nevertheless. However, I think the interesting component here is that if you knew this guy was behind the eight ball in terms of popularity and that you had work to do to push him back to the front in the way that he needed to be, there should have been a much more serious promotional effort behind this. Uh, and there wasn't. I think I, I just can't quite square it. I, you knew there was, ostensibly, you knew there was a challenge in, in either visibility or awareness among the current crop of pay-per-view buying audiences. And yet there wasn't a special effort to make sure that that problem was addressed. You, I looked. I went to the UFC's YouTube channel yesterday. By any measurement, the UFC's YouTube channel is one of the better ones of, of all major sports properties. And GSP fights on there for free. Maybe some will be on there tomorrow. But I'm thinking if you're trying to do a re-education process, you got to have something on there, man. Something so, or some kind of vignette, some kind of story, something much more profound than what they've done. I've seen a decent a job in terms of um, prom, um, buys for ad space, whether it's bus backs or, you know, if you're in Manhattan, you see posters everywhere and you can see the giant stuff in Times Square. They've done a pretty good job of that, you know, a pretty regular job. But if you know that the story needs to be told, it just feels like to me that they haven't really told the story in any kind of impactful way. And they knew they needed to tell it. That's what I don't get. I don't really understand. You guys were the ones that figured out first there was a challenge. We kind of had to wake up to it after scoffing at it. And and if you knew that, why wasn't there a better effort? Because some of these things you see about some of these press conferences and these hockey matches, these were done after the fact and added after they realized that sales weren't picking up like they thought they would. I don't understand that. I don't. I really, really don't get that. Um, so that's one problem. The other problem I've sort of, had, which is frankly kind of scary, is this notion of fan um, turnover. It, it would have never have occurred to me that people who watch MMA currently would have no idea who St. Pierre is. That is shocking. Shocking. Now, again, I think the people who do can probably be, you know, um, can have that somewhat rekindled, or could you train a new generation of fans to appreciate them? Potentially. Certainly, potentially. And I think this is going back to the same regional argument. If you had not done this fight in New York and you had done it somewhere in Canada or you had done that somewhere in uh, Montreal, I'm not guaranteeing it would have been a sellout, but it stands to reason it probably would have done a little bit better. He did get a roaring applause at whatever hockey game back, I think it was a Habs game back in uh, Canada um, that him and Bisping went to. So there's something to be said for that as well. Um, but it just sort of is very concerning that MMA fans come for a few years and go. It's like MMA fans are, it's like an NFL career. What's the average NFL career? It's like three seasons, three years, something like that. It's very, very, very short. Like the Most guys in the NFL play for a little bit and then they're gone. Very, very few last like seven, ten years. That's very hard to do. And 
the current promotion feels like the UFC said to themselves, you know, we had to we had to really get out there and rally the fan base and explain to this how the explain to them how this works and explain to them the value and explain to them um, you know, whether that's the fan base or the media or interested third parties. We had to go there and do a lot of hand holding as the UFC to get people to pay attention. And I think they felt like, you know, they were raising some kid on a training wheels bike and they were able to push him and the training wheels came off and MMA can just sort of carry forward on its own momentum. It turns out that's not the case. It turns out you have a new generation of kids on training wheels that need your help. If there's going to be any value, I had someone, uh, even my, my producer of my own radio show, she got into the sport right after Couture retired. Now Couture was in some movies after that a little bit more prominently than GSP was in Captain America. So she has some understanding of Couture, but basically they don't have the same sentimentality for Couture that those of us who were around when he was competing do. Liddell has sort of an iconic association with the brand, so maybe there'd be some of that they could go back to. He was one of the first big stars here. You know, I, we bring out all the old hits. These, these, these. It's amazing. It's like the, the uh, with Kimbo, you was like, how can this guy still draw after all these many losses and? all of this many exposure about, you know, how good he really actually was, which was, you know, by professional standards, he'd done, he'd come a long way, but obviously was not that great. And, uh, and, but passions died for him hard. Now, four years is a long time, but it's just, it's like weird. Some fighters have, or maybe it's a, is it, is it, some fighters have this incredible lingering appeal? Is that it? Or do, uh, or do very, very few have that lingering appeal and most get turned pretty quickly? My hunch is that by the end of, not this weekend, but of course next, that I think there will be a lot more enthusiasm for 217. There will be a lot more promotion for it next week. Today there's a media day. I think eventually we'll feel a lot better about how it all turned out. But it's just a weird warning sign that if you can't – like it looks to me like the mechanism of fan creation is some set of stars brings in fans who watch for a few years. Then when the stars go, the fans go. And then if a new set of stars come in and create a new generation, then that's how it keeps going. But what if you don't create a new set of stars in a timely turnover kind of passing the baton way? Then what happens? I don't really know. But that I find concerning. So, again, it's like the Bellator situation. This one is it lays bare a number of wider issues. This lays bare a number of wider issues related to the nature of popularity, related to the nature of how popularity can linger in some fighters and not in others, in the way the UFC promotes and needs to change things in a more precise way around regional ties um, to make these events as big as they can be. Um, and 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 some wake-up calls about... Uh, you know, what the future might look like. Someone says, three reasons I think GSP is underselling. Number one, this is his word, not mine, uh, but this comment is green. UFC has abandoned the Canadian market. After GSP retired, very little investment, few big shows, not resigning Rory McDonald. It's not an enthusiastic Canadian fan base. I think that could be rehabilitated, but you're probably right. There is some lingering damage. Number two, 2008 to 12, stars are forgotten, fan base is gone. Anderson Silva, as the UFC... Co-main for 208 made no difference. For, did 200k buys. Son and Vanderlei Fedor flopped on pay-per-view. Rashad Evans and BJ are buried on FS1 cards. People will not pay to see them. Probably true. Being champion is not enough for the pay-per-view buying audience. Bisping versus GSP is not an organic matchup. 
Only reason for the fight is that Bisping has a belt and UFC belts are devalued in today's MMA. These are all very good reasons as well. So, good. MMA striking, chin up, hands down, Till Ferguson McGregor. As boxing is my main reference for striking, I have wondered about some of the specifics of MMA striking lately. The last two UFC events' biggest winners have been Darren Till and Tony Ferguson. Both of them regarded as talented strikers, and both of them have a remarkably high open chin and low hands. I can understand the low hands as you should be ready for takedowns, but such a high open chin is obviously a big no-no in boxing. Even Conor McGregor and other elite MMA fighters often have this chin-up, hands-down approach, Rockhold, Verdun, to name a couple. Is there an explanation for this, or is it poor technique, bad habits? What's your take on it? Partly, um, I don't think there's a lot of technical explanation for it, because as you mentioned, a lot of times it's combined with low hands, so you're not trying to look over your hands. So that's not really it. There's a lot of times we see guys with high chins, they'll also have high guards, and rather than looking around through the brow level, they'll raise up over it. You'll see that a lot, but that's not it because what they're doing is that very European style where the rear hand is kind of cocked out here, elbow and rib have a little bit of space, and the other hand is kind of pawing out front like this, right? You see a lot of that too. Make sure my mic didn't get jacked up. No, kind of out like this. McGregor does it. Till does it. Uh, Ferguson doesn't quite do it that way either, but um, so it's not that. Now, in the case of Tony Ferguson, he's been torched for it a couple of times. He's never had to pay the ultimate price, but, you know, old Groovy Lando made him pay. Others have connected on it. He just kind of eats the shot and keeps going. So it's not that it's not a liability. It's just one where the terrible consequences haven't quite revealed themselves in his case. But against someone like McGregor, they might, you know, because he's really, really good at exploiting that kind of thing. If you ask McGregor, would you rather strike with somebody whose chin is in the air or not? I'm fairly sure one answer he's going to give you there. So then you might be asking, well, then why do those guys do it? I'd have to talk to their coach to get a better explanation. There might be some kind of reason for it that I'm not aware of. I mostly think it's because when you fight rangy like that, Darren Till's really good about when he fights, he does this. McGregor's really good about inside and outside slipping. So I think these guys just trust their defense enough and their head movement enough to to just say i'm going to see if i can get away with it and and in truth early in fights darren till gets away with it look go back and watch that fight look how many times cowboys punch comes like this close like like just very very close but never quite enough till's got really good lean. he's got a really good lean and there are times when leaning back can be inadvisable but nevertheless um, he's really good at that. He's really good at, at managing range and distance, both defensively and offensively to score. And I think McGregor's the same way. And when those guys are good at slipping like this um, and then launching devastating attack after the fact, they prefer that kind versus, you know, here and trying to look over the gloves, but the gloves are down. Everything's hunched, elbow to elbow to ribs. You know, it's not, you're not squeezing it, but it's, everything is compact. I just don't think they operate in that. They, they can't. They can't have that freedom to have all the different angles they want when they're compact like that. And I think partly it's because of the open spacing of the octagon as well, right? If you're in a ring, you need to be very, very careful about what you leave open and how you move. You know, just look at how badly. I mean, he was he was tired by that point, but look at how badly. You know, Mayweather was headhunting McGregor. 
And I think because by the time he got tired, low hands, you just don't have the react, you don't have the muscle memory or the instincts to bring him back up anymore. He didn't have particular tie up techniques mastered for uh, for boxing, and um, so it's not like there's not it's not like there's not downsides to it. It's that I think those guys feel like they can get away with it either because they've got a rock chin or um, because they're, they really trust their head movement and distance management to get around it. Plus, if you can always put yourself in boxing range and you're Conor McGregor and you saw Darren Till wasn't much of a finisher up until this contest, but I think he probably thinks the same thing, that I just need a couple of shots to land on you and the entire momentum of a fight can shift very quickly in my direction. Whether that's going to pay off over time, we're going to see. But it's not like they think this is good. This is universally not good. UFC promoting boxing, Zufa boxing. Dana White said in a recent interview that the UFC was open to the possibility of going into boxing. And we all saw his Zufa boxing t-shirt during the May Mac tour. What do you think about the UFC Zufa boxing promotion? Good move. What do you think and prefer it would look like? This is an interesting one to me. So how much Fight Pass do you guys watch? How much do you watch? And by that, I mean not old fights. I mean like other organizations that put on shows, live events on Fight Pass. What I have noticed is a heavy um, – they all look and feel like UFC shows. The production vibe is very, very similar. Very, very similar. Now, Glory, I think, does a lot of its own production and gets a bit of a budget from Fight Pass to do certain things. Invicta is the same way. I know EBI gets a bit of a budget to work with for production value, and so EBI is very different. But there are certain, I think, creative licenses that these content producers are allowed to have in making their events, and I think there are certain restrictions in place as well. Here's my point. As the UFC moves online um, and as MMA enters a bit of a down look, this is a down year, down time in the sport. You can see the UFC already realizes that they probably have either the know-how or the mechanisms or the sensibility, at least in their judgment, to promote a lot more than MMA. Now, with the Ali Act, there would be some restrictions about what those contracts could say um, <laughs> relative to what the UFC MMA contracts say. But, but yeah, if they feel like they can make... I mean, look at what the Mayweather-McGregor tour probably... I mean, again, this is such a wild, you know, almost an exception that proves the rule. But I bet they thought to themselves, "What if we could promote big boxing fights too? We wouldn't re we wouldn't necessarily be reliant upon the stream of income. We could put a lot of stuff in house. We already pay for kickboxing. We already pay for jujitsu. We pay for all these other MMA promotions. Why not boxing too? Why can't we just do that? Um, and if the biggest fights being made are the ones in boxing, then we should be making those fights rather than just just solely MMA ones." Um, frankly, I kind of understand it. Now, whether they can successfully pull it off, I don't know. What that means for the future of MMA, great question. Um, it's just amazing to me, and one of the things that I kind of wanted to discuss a little bit earlier was I've had this thought. I've had this thought, and I don't know how true it is, and it's slightly off topic from what you're asking, but it goes back to the earlier stuff. You know, remember I mentioned, you know, why doesn't the UFC, if, if this is a return fight for GSP, this should really be a you know, you want to go where he's got a fair amount of a built-in fan base. This should have been in Montreal or, you know, and Canada's North American pay-per-view market, so it's not necessarily limiting in that sense. 
and you know this makes sense for Stipe uh, and, and all these kinds of things about money fights and you know in MMA when Dana White first started out you can go back and look at old interviews he did with newspaper editors and and writers and one of the things that they always said was we're gonna not make the same mistakes boxing made. we're gonna do things a little bit differently and for a while man it really made a lot of sense like we're gonna have the best guys fight each other and for a while I was like wow this is so different and great and Anyway, MMA was dynamic relative to boxing. I still think it is personally, but I can't make that claim for everybody. Um, that um, you know, you just thought they had kind of said we can look at all the mistakes that boxing has made. We can correct for it. You know, we're not going to have too many divisions. We're not going to have too many titles. We're going to make sure the best fight the best, and on and on and on. And as time goes on, what we are finding is that. I'm not saying MMA is becoming boxing and I'm, I'm still trying to work this theory out in my head. So you, you can't quite hold me to it yet, but I want to at least introduce it rather than we all thought the limitations of the boxing model were these choices that either unscrupulous or incompetent people had eventually forced the model into. And I'm sure some of that probably is true. But one thing I'm beginning to think more and more is that this is just the inevitable consequence of how these things evolve generally. That rather than MMA, MMA was never going to correct for all those things because over time, the way that preferences change and incentives create behavior forces everyone to follow that exact same path. It's the end of history, right? Um, to borrow from old Francis Fukuyama. Uh, it, this is just how things naturally go. Like everyone's like lamenting the super fight thing. What if this was just the inevitable consequence of how things were going to go anyway? Everyone's lamenting, including me, the addition of extra weight classes. What if all those weight classes are just the natural thing, the natural impulse for people to create because that's that, and that's why boxing has it because they were around long enough for those preferences to work themselves out. Um, that's something that has really begun to occur to me. We all thought that we were going to go in the opposite direction, and we went like that, and now we're coming back the exact opposite way further and further and further to the point now where the UFC might even get into boxing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it was a fun little experiment while it lasted, and maybe I'm overstating things. It is very possible. Again, I'm still working out this theory a little bit, but it just looks like – and there's very specific things. You know, boxing had this federally regulated model – um, that changes things significantly relative to MMA, and there's lots of different nuances about how the, the way boxing works was created. But over time, you're just beginning to notice some similarities, and I don't think it's an accident. I think we, to an extent, how much I don't know, kid ourselves into thinking we could do a little bit differently, and we're just going to eventually end up on the exact same path because that's how human preferences over time will just push it no matter what we'll see sal paulo art is good this weekend huh what do you think about the ufc sal paulo card can you do a quick rundown which ones are you most looking forward to uh brunson versus machida i have machida on my show i'm looking forward to seeing the return of leota machida from the world's dumbest mma suspension of all time uh demian meyer versus colby covington is this colby covington's coming out party we will see Pedro Munoz has some of the best guillotines in the business against Rob Font, whose only real hiccup was against John Lineker. Uh, Massa Renduba is back against Jim Miller. Some old war horses still out there slugging it out. 
And then in my judgment, maybe the one of the more talented European guys on the come up, Jack Hermanson takes on Tiago Santos. That should be big. Plus John Lineker against Marlon Vera, Marlon Vera on three fight win streak. You go into the preliminary card, Vicente Luque is back against Nico Price. Two flawed strikers and guys who can do a little bit more than that in the case of Luque, but should be a fun contest. Shoeface is back against Jack Marshman. Shoeface is some of the best modern jiu-jitsu in MMA. Uh, Hakra Diaz versus Jared Gordon. We'll see how Jared Gordon looks. Elizu Zaleski Dos Santos versus Max Griffin. Don't really have a strong opinion about. Devison Figueredo versus Jared Brooks. We'll see how that goes. I don't have a strong view of that. And Christian Colombo versus Marcelo Golm. I don't care about it at all. Um, Chito Vera is on a bit of a three-fight win streak, but I still find it a bit of an uphill battle against Lineker. Lineker just hits so hard. I had Rob Font on my show, and I was like, how hard does Lineker hit? And he was like, bro, I've never even been hit that hard in practice. He, what he said what it did to him was the power was so shocking that it sped everything up because he got hit. Boom. And even if you, he said even when he blocked it, like, you could just feel how hard it was. And that it shocked him to the point where he couldn't rationally process the fight and slow it down. So the fight went super fast and he was constantly on his horse moving, 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 moving because he was so mesmerized by the power that it like literally distracted him from making rational choices in the course of a fight. That, that must be something. So Chito Vera has had some nice wins, especially against Brian Kelleher, but I don't know about this one. And then Covington versus Maya. Um, Let's see if Maya can submit him. I think Covington might surprise some people, but we'll see. I don't really know. Last roundup for Cowboy. Hey, Luke, considering how the main event played out in Poland last week, has the sun set on Cowboy's title ambitions and has his take-on-all-comers mentality come back to bite him in the ass? Yes, of course it has. He looked a shadow of his former self against up-and-coming prospect until... And certainly not the wily vet we know and love. Is this the end of the road for Cowboy as far as fighting for a strap? Probably. Or can he come back and put a run together again? I think he can put runs together again. But fighting for a strap, this is probably the end. Um, you have to... You can, I've made this point before. Fighters are going to have a certain set of interests and consumers are going to have a certain set of interests. And when they align, that's great. But a lot of times they won't align. It did not really rationally make sense for cowboy to take this other than to preserve the you know the integrity of his principles any guy anytime anywhere um but rationally didn't really make a lot of sense to take that fight you saw darren till effusive with praise for cowboy for taking that because he knew just not a lot of guys are going to do that it's not really rationally in their interest but cowboy makes a lot of decisions that are not rationally in his interest and i think as a fan it's hard to expect that from a fighter, but I think what you can do is when they do that, you should celebrate that. You should thank them for that because they're doing something that is much better for you and me than it is for them. And that is that is a rare thing these days. That's what makes MMA great in some ways. Well, you know, look, I, again, I'll always understand if a fighter doesn't take something like that, you know, what are you going to do? You would probably make a similar decision in a similar circumstance before a guy like Cowboy to not shy away from challenges like that, even when it comes to hurt him, you know, it might have limited the upper bound limit of his career, but in many ways it's cemented fan enthusiasm. It'll probably send him to the UFC hall of fame, not this one fight, but his larger body of work in, in particular. Um, and, um, and it's why we like him. We should be very, very, very grateful that fighters like Cowboy exist because he is very much not typical 
and it's not that he's atypical in some kind of small way. He is atypical in a profound way, and we are getting more entertainment as a consequence of it. You got to be thankful for that. Cub Swanson. Cub Swanson has said recently that the Ortega fight is the last one on his deal. What are your thoughts? Uh, he'd be a great addition to Bellator if they wanted to pick him up. Hope he gets what he's looking for. Do you think UFC will let him go? Depending on what he's asking for, I could see them letting him go. Sure. Do you think he will beat Ortega? Probably. Probably. He let... Um, he let... Lobov hang around a little long, for my taste. So... If that Duho Choi fight really jacked him up, then there might be some issues. But Ortega takes a lot of unnecessary damage. And on the ground, he's amazing. I wish he would just go to the ground more often because he is so dynamic there. But that's a fight Cubs shouldn't lose, especially over three rounds. Shouldn't lose that. I've only got one wreck, but I just want to bring this up so we can move on from this. Uh, Connor's use of the F word, the gay slur kind. Luke, how personally offended by this language are you? Not very. And does it change your opinion about Connor at all? No. Uh, how concerned should the UFC and Connor's sponsors be about this? Let's say he uses language like that at his next big press conference. Should there be a consequence? This is the thing I don't understand about what Connor is doing. You know, he kind of treaded that line a little bit in the second Nate Diaz fight, or it was the first one. I think it was the first one. Not that great. He goes and calls Mayweather boy. We've already had this debate. Again, I didn't think it's the biggest deal in the world, but probably advisable to not do that again. Then he goes to Brooklyn and has, you know, just this epic failure of a comedy routine, which is un understandable in, in part because they were trying to do this night over night over night, but also because it was like, dude, this is material you should not, you, you do not know how to handle this material. You should not be getting into it. You know, if you had a little more comfortability with the topic, maybe. I don't think it's exclusionary based on who you are, but other than your real knowledge about this, and he clearly did not was not very comfortable with this. And then he goes and does this. Now, look, here's the deal about all this. I've said this before. I'll say it again. It, it's not 9-11. Connor used a gay slur. This is not good, okay? But our day is not going to stop about this, nor am I advocating that it should stop. Your day should go on. The event continued. We should cover it as such. And as my colleague Dave Doyle, I think, quite appropriately pointed out, this was a guy in Connor McGregor in 2015 that went out of his way to promote uh, and use whatever celebrity he had at the time to make sure that gay marriage was passed in Ireland. His record is actually pretty good related to those issues, but he's also got some of these things at the margins on the other end in terms of things he said about Mexicans and blacks and gays, where in and of themselves, not any one of them is super horrible, although this one's not great, but here's the only thing I need people to understand. Number one, if you are Conor McGregor and you are sponsored by these major brands, maybe you should think twice about the language you're using at any point in time because... Um, you have a lot to lose, right? Remember, Mayweather doesn't have sponsors, and he called Connor that as well. But you can be like, well, what happened about his sponsors? He doesn't have, he has Hublot, the, the watchmaker, but he made a billion dollars more or less of fight purses. He never made himself beholden to anybody else. Connor doesn't have that luxury. He has uh, got a number of sponsors, both exclusive to Ireland and Europe, as well as globally. Something to consider. Maybe Beats probably wouldn't like that, right? Okay. The other one is, as I mentioned before, it's not, it's not D-Day. Like, I'm happy to say, let's go on about our day and let's worry about some of the bigger things. Let's talk about fights. The only thing I object to is that there is a portion of the community that wants to say there's no, there's nothing to see here at 
all, like literally nothing. It is as if he had said the word Smurf or yes, ma'am, or how you doing? Please, can we, can we, can we just stop that? That is, it's a very minimal ask I am asking of you. All I'm asking for you is to say, uh, okay, look, the larger picture is probably not that bad, but he really shouldn't say stuff like this. Not in his own self-interest and not as a matter of decency towards uh, marginalized groups. And then we can just move on. I don't need an apology from him. I'm not asking for an apology from him. I don't care about an apology from him. My recommendation, just stop saying stuff like this. It's in your interest. It's probably the right thing to do. And then we move on. But everyone's like, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna take a stand for free speech. You're taking a stand for dumb for dumb speech. That's the hill of free speech you want to die on. Really? I can think of a lot more important free speech battles, like on campus, let's say, uh, that would be much more important for the future of humanity rather than I'm gonna defend, I'm gonna defend the six-letter F word. That seems like an awfully poor use of free speech resources. Um, and yes, he should be, have the right to say it without government censure, but no, no one's advocating for that either. You know, just please, like, let's just be relatively decent about it, and then we can move on. But when you deny that there's anything to say about it, like literally nothing, you make the situation worse. Because it's clearly not true that there's nothing to say about it. There's something to say about it, and then we go. I just, I don't understand it. If you want the thing to go away do the thing that makes it go away, not the thing that makes it a way bigger story than it needs to be. Oh, and this is the last thing about this, and I'll move on, I swear to God. Last thing, I promise. Uh, <laughs> in people trying to buttress their viewpoint, about how using this word, and yes, the F word is not the N word, because the N word, if you call your other white friend an N word, it's like, doesn't even make any sense. But I grew up in an age, and I have used the F word for 20 years. For 20 years I used it, because I grew up in a time when it wasn't a big deal. And I know Ireland's like, there's, I have so, so many Irish fans who are like, well, it's not a big deal. Well, first of all, I got plenty of people from Ireland telling me that it is. So it's at least a mixed response here at, at best. Second of all, I don't know if you guys know this. I grew up in a time in America where you could say that whenever you wanted to. People said it in music all the time. All my friends said it. You had Julio Jones on TV the other day being like, hey, I, a game we used to play was called Smear the Queer. This is an actual game we played in the United States. It's a stupid game, but we all played it. Yes, I'm as guilty as the next guy. I probably said it more than Conor McGregor. So this is not glass houses throw, throwing stones. It's merely an observation that like, while I grew up in a time where you could do that, as gay life became more mainstream and as uh, members of our gay community, both in MMA and in the, the, the wider society generally, began to have more of a voice and began to vocalize preferences and began to be uh, more visible and important and just more have a, have a more public life, it began to dawn on us that using words like that were not merely hurtful and mean but probably inappropriate in, in most contexts. In art, I don't think it's inappropriate necessarily. I would, wouldn't want to regulate art. So everyone who is from Europe being like, it's not a big deal here, it's going to be in about 10 or 20 years, maybe less. You're just, a, you got to catch up a little bit. I don't know how else to say it. If you think you're going to be this exempt territory where this these rules will never apply, you're in for a rude awakening. It's coming your way, and it's probably coming a lot faster than you think. Just be decent, and let's move on. Okay. End scene. All right. Nate's inactivity. 
I see and hear this a lot. They can do the trilogy fight, talking about McGregor, anytime, and we'll do great numbers. Is this a correct statement? For now, it is. I mean, with Nate not having taken another fight since his last time he and Connor fought, at what point does it become irrelevant? I'm not worried about Nate because Nate, there's still a lot of demand for this. He's still pretty popular. The one that's more interesting to me is, in light of what we learned about GSP, which, is, again, is very, very different from Kimbo, but in light of what we learned against GSP, um, the more time you take off, the more this becomes irreparable. Right? If he took four years off or three and some change, three and some heavy change, then you're probably looking at a scenario where uh, one of the greatest of all time has some work to do to reintroduce himself. Now, Diaz's appeal, Nick Diaz's appeal is very different. He has this, you know, sort of underground appeal he always has. His brother, who shares a name, I think still is popular. That might buoy him some. But, you know, we talked about it last week, and I was saying, I think if you're a Nate Diaz fan, you kind of, or a Nick Diaz fan, you kind of just got to let this go. He might come back, but who knows? But now you have to sort of encounter the reality that even if he does come back, he comes back to what exactly, depending how long he takes off. Because now we're looking at a case where St. Pierre is having trouble, uh, and he's like on, on anyone's Mount Rushmore is one of the best ever. Whatever Mount Rushmore is supposed to even mean anymore. But you get the idea. If that guy's having trouble, I mean, who's – Who's not going to have trouble, you know? Robert Whitaker. Luke, have you heard anything about him recently? I have not. This person says, I follow him on Instagram, and it seems he's been wrestling, hitting pads, and doing jujitsu these last few months. Is he actually hurt? Uh, seems to me the UFC was hell-bent on making GSP Bisping for a title, even if the interim champ could have been ready to fight in November or December of this year. Um, I'm sure he is hurt. I don't think he's malingering and nor is he out there claiming he's being ducked. Now you can, you can hit pads and you can do wrestling to an extent and you can do jujitsu to an extent. Um, even when you're recovering, there's probably limits to that. And there's probably additional amounts of recovery work to supplement that. But it's not like I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm healed. It's a continuum process. And at some point you're hundred percent, some point you're 80 80 can often look like 100 to the to the impartial observer. So I would trust that if he says he's injured and he's recovering, he probably means it. McGregor pay-per-view price is going up. Hi, Luke. I mentioned here a while back that a friend of mine back home in Ireland said that McGregor had a clause put into his Mayweather contract to not publicly disparage the new featherweight title holder on social media, which we know he didn't. This person doesn't have a specific contact with McGregor, but he did do some work for him, either him or SBG, legal work. Anyway... This is this person writing this. I cannot verify the authenticity of this. Same guy said that McGregor's pay-per-view cut demands going forward mean the UFC will increase the price of his pay-per-view by 5 to $10. Have you heard anything about this? No, but that's a very interesting point, or question, rather. I don't doubt this guy again, but again, he's not particularly connected to know. So then why are you bringing it up? The last time uh, they did that was for Weidman Silva, and Dana said it was a once-off, and they went from 50, $54.99 to $59.99 for the HD broadcast. Now that's the normal price. For every pay-per-view so i think that when the price goes up it will not just be for mcgregor's pay-per-view in the near future any truth i'll look into that wouldn't surprise me if his cost more but not substantially more remember this will also vary by mso's um comcast may not charge the same as rcn as time warner as direct tv that can vary not significantly but that can vary you know from five to ten dollars depending on um how you're getting it so i have not heard this it's something we can look into but remember those those prices can vary beyond the UFC's control to an extent.
fantasy matchups, then I will just give you then I will just give you a fantasy answer. Prime Kane versus Prime Fedor. Prime Kane. Maya versus Askren. Guess Maya, Nate versus Nick at welterweight. Nick, Connor versus Max. I think um, it's the same thing, man. I think if Connor gasses, Max will tear him up. But if he doesn't, hard to say. Prime GSP versus Woodley, GSP. Krokop versus Gokan Saki. You mean like currently? I guess Gokan. Uh, Mark Kerr versus Lesnar. Lesnar. Habib versus Prime BJ. Probably Habib. DJ versus TJ at catchweight of 130. Probably TJ. Tony F versus Max. Tony Ferguson versus Max. Holloway. Tony. Uh, Askren versus Habib. Askren. He's too big. Prime Anderson versus Rockhold. Probably Prime Anderson. And then Masvidal versus Till. That's a tough one. I'll go Masvidal, but that's a that's a very, very tough one. And then someone says Luke Thomas versus Zach Bushia. Well, y'all had some jokes at Bellator 185, didn't you? About old Zach Bushia looking just like me. Or, you know, some version of me, I suppose. Funny, funny. All right. It is 2.15, so let us go to the Twitter machine if we can. You can uh, hit me up at LThomasNews or Chat Rappers. Uh, uh, the hashtag, all that's explained in the post below. All right. Did you hear Colby Covington on the MMA hour on Monday? I did not. Thoughts on his new boisterous persona, yay or nay? It works for him great. I, I don't really get invested in things like that too, too often. It seems like Dana only gives a damn if Connor or Ronda are involved in an upcoming card. Feels that way. Whether that's true or not, it certainly feels that way. Coker recently mentioned a possible Bellator heavyweight tourney. How would you construct their bracket with their talent? Um, I'd have to look at their talent, which I'm not really going to do right now. I mean, would Minikov be a part of it? Um, certainly, you've got Roy Nelson would be a part of it. Would you wait for Frank Mir? Um, who else do they have at heavyweight? Sergey Heratonov, you could still use, I suppose. Lots of things you could do. Wouldn't Bellator have better ratings if their program was live on the West Coast? If COPS is better, why not delay on East Coast also? Um, they don't view it like live sports at Spike. They like to... I think what they like to do is like to show it live on the East Coast, show it lot or you know, same time, like 9 p.m. East Coast time, and then wait till 9 p.m. West Coast time, and then show it, and then add up the two numbers. And I think they think they feel like they get bigger numbers that way. Any opinion on Stevie Wonder not really being blind? <laughs> There's a case I think um, Greg Howard of Deadspin made it probably in jest about there's a truther case that Stevie Wonder is not actually blind.
What NYC card is better top to bottom, 205 or 217? I'd argue 217, but that's just me. Fight to make, Till versus Nelson. Okay. Diaz versus Alvarez Gaethje winner. That'd be awesome. Gus versus Rockhold. Sure. Weidman versus Machida Brunson winner. I like all those. All those are great choices. I watched a dumb... This is this person saying this. I watched a dumb video saying Connor is part of MK Ultra and controlled by Dana. Do you believe any conspiracies? Uh, probably not. I typically... It's like the, the core of a conspiracy theory to get to is that there is, in many reasons, in many ways, reasons to suspect or at least be skeptical of the official counts, accounts of either um, governments or members of a government, you know, an unnamed official in the NSA. I mean, these people have a, a, an agenda for sure um, and have often proved to be unreliable golf hashtag golf of Tonkin incident. Um, so on that sense, I share their, uh, I share their skepticism of the official accounts of many things. The problem is, that when they then try to piece together an alternative narrative, they are almost always garbage, right? I made this point about, you know, alternative media before, like everyone tells me, you know, the in many, and in particular the American media, but they weren't alone. You know, they were so deeply wrong about, let's say the Iraq war and weapons of mass destruction and what Saddam had and what he didn't have. And they sort of cheerleaded all these efforts that ultimately ended up putting us there. You know, how can you, and then, and, you know, there was really not a lot of work about the subprime mortgage failure until it was too late. Um, the media response did not get anybody jailed. That's more than just the media's fault. But that, that was that, you, I mean, there really are some heavy media criticisms, you can say, for cheerleading um, the U.S. government onto a war it didn't need to be in. And, and all that's pretty true. Like, all that's pretty true. It's just then those are the same people who are like, and by the way, there's reptile humans and, you know, um, Sandy Hook was not real. I mean, it's like, you know, they, whatever credibility you had in raising alarm and skepticism about the ability of wider media organizations to carry water for governments or get stories wrong, this would be okay. I, I'm with you. It's just that then your alternative version of things is so clearly insane that I can't go along with it. But I share the skepticism of things. What's at stake in Leota Machida versus Derek Brunson? Well, if Brunson can't beat a Machida that's been gone for a while, he's got some questions to ask himself. Machida, interestingly enough, um, what's left for him? He told me, matter of factly, that he still wants to make a run at a title. This is still very, very important for him. He thinks he can still do it. Um, and if he loses to Brunson, then the two years off with must have been incredibly harmful for him. By the way, two years off for Machida. How are the ratings going to be on Saturday night for him? Are folks really going to remember what he has done in the sport? So those are some other bigger questions um, to get to there as well. So that should be kind of interesting. So what's left of Machida as a competitor? Can Brunson really finally turn a corner and get a win over a big name, especially one that's been off for a couple of years? Um, this is kind of big. GSP versus Bisping is a fight nobody wants and asks for except two men who want the easiest fight for the most money. I think that's probably upsetting some people, sure. Um, I don't see it, and the odds back me up, but do you agree a Maya win versus Colby would be a disaster for UFC? Disaster, no, but not good. Any updates on the Rothwell-Barnett-USADA violations? I've not looked into it. That's a good question. You know what? I'm going to make a note of that. I'm going to... It's a good question. 
who wins this weekend's main event and co-main event and how? I'm going to say that Machida finds a way to pull it out by stoppage or decision. Uh, and who is the co-main this weekend? Let me see. Real quick, huh? Oh, yeah, and then Maya versus Covington. Maybe Covington does it, man. Maybe Covington does it. I don't know. Those are both very, very tough calls. Very tough calls. Hard to say. Um, as far as reach goes, there are numerous social media pages that post fights right after they happen. Brendan Schaub and Ariel, etc. I'm not sure these are the only two. Always claim nobody sees the fights, and that's just false. They see them, they just don't pay. Numerous pages with 300k followers all posting fights for free. I feel like that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, I didn't realize how prevalent that was until I got into Instagram. Oh my god, you guys are thieves on Instagram, man. I mean, I'm not mad. I follow half the <laughs> half the thieve accounts. Believe me, I am I am not above thievery myself, I suppose, as a consumer anyway, but wow, the amount of thieves are is insane. Um I've seen certain accounts that after every result, if there's any kind of a finished sub or, or some kind of stoppage, they show like as much as, you know, that 60 seconds that they can and uh, given the window. And uh, yeah, but I, the thing is, it always feels to me like piracy is some kind of a cop out for a, a dysfunctional product or a dysfunctional presentation of the product or dysfunctional relationship with its fans. Because like, look at Mayweather McGregor, like, there was insane levels of streaming for that, and it still cleared, you know, near record-breaking levels of pay-per-view. Like, if you really have stuff that's high in demand, I actually feel like you get more um, piracy that way. Um, now, there might be a question of if there's low interest, and there's still um, people will not resort to privacy if there's high interest. If there's low interest, you might get some privacy that way that would ordinarily make people tune in there might be like a reverse effect at the very low end but my my general view about privacy is that it's uh, piracy excuse me is that it's very much a problem but it's it's not enough of a factor to explain diminished interest by itself is what i would say how do you watch real madrid since you cut the cord um all of their games are shown on bn sport and are mostly all of their games not all of them and BN Sport is on Sling, depending on your um, your whatever package you have, and I have it in mine. So I just turn on BN Sport. BN Sport has La Liga rights, so you can watch Atletico, you can watch Barcelona, you can watch. I mean, you can watch even more than that, but they focus on those three teams: Atletico, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. Um, Real Madrid. Um, so, so yeah, that's how I watch it. Easy, legally, I pay for it. Plus, if you don't, there's something here in the states called Fubo. TV. They might be more more than just the United States. F U B O dot TV, and you can pay for that a monthly fee, and you get just about everything. So, this is my point about cutting the cord. It used to be like, well, I want to cut the cord, but I really like my sports. Now there's no reason you can get everything you want cutting the cord. You don't need the cord to get any of the sports you need from YouTube TV. I get, um, I get ESPN. I get ESPN two, ESPNU. I get Fox Sports 1, I get Fox Sports 2, I get FX, I get FXX, 
and then I get my local Comcast so I can watch the Wizards. Um, and and to an extent, uh, I believe um, Capitals as well. I don't get Masson, I don't think, so I don't get the chance to watch the Nationals, so I'd have to steal that. But for soccer, I get be in. Um, I'm covered. Like I get every, I get everything. There's almost nothing I don't get. Favorite BJJ to watch in any particular fight? I won't say favorite BJJ, but I'll say this again: if you haven't seen the Eric Spicely shoe faced fight, and you want to see what modern jujitsu looks like, that's probably the best example I've ever seen in MMA. So go check that out, or go check out Crone Gracie and what he's done in. Uh, various Japanese promotions and how he doesn't use the body triangle to control, how he puts heels on the hips and uses that to turn and steer and control guys. It's like another level above what everyone else is accustomed to. That kind of thing is cool as well. I also, if you've never seen Carl Parisian, go back and look at Carl Parisian, some of the great, great th throws he had. I, I'll just recommend this. Go look at um, Carl Parisian, Diego Sanchez. Not really a BJJ recommendation, but just maybe one of my most favorite fights ever. Connor has an interview with BT Sport tomorrow. Do you think Connor will announce his next fight? Unlikely, but possible. You see Bradley and Altador getting booed by 70,000 plus in Atlanta. Check the Giovinco goal from that game. I don't watch MLS. Um, well, I'll watch DC United in person, but I don't, I don't. MLS is. Do you guys see what this is? The uh, you know the Columbus Crew which is an MLS team might get moved to Austin and the owner had the balls to say, well, it's a business decision. <laughs> like there are certain metrics the fan base is not meeting. So it's much more my interest to move the team to Austin. Now I think Europeans have rightly brought up a point. I mean, like you would never imagine, you know, you know, Liverpool FC or Manchester United like leaving Manchester for, you know, Brighton or Bolton or whatever, or some suburb of London. You just couldn't imagine that. And I think partly they're a little bit strict about that, but they generally have a point. Like these are cultural communal institutions that really bind people. And I get all that. Um, but you know, it's also the premier league and you know, it's, it's easier to be, a, it's much easier to be a Manchester United fan than it is a Columbus crew fan. You have a lot more incentive. I'll put it that way. Um, but, but to say something like, you know, it's a business decision. It's like, understand something here, donkey. <laughs> Columbus crew is part of the MLS. All right. And these guys try hard and this fan base who's here, they want them here. And that's really what matters. However, um, you're the minor leagues. If what you're telling me is your participation in this city is contingent upon you making enough money, why on earth would I support you to begin with? Like, I could easily, and I, I, I do watch European soccer. That's all I really watch. But, like, I can imagine a fan being like, if, if this is just transactional, let me just go watch whatever the Europeans are doing, and you can go F off somewhere. You know, either you want to lay down roots here and work this through, or you don't. And if you don't, I'm you're treating us like we're transactional. Allow us to return the favor. I mean, the balls on him to say something like that is amazing. Uh, really incredible. Now, again, Columbus Crew does not mean to Columbus what it what you know Manchester United means to Manchester, but and nor should it. But um, you know, for an MLS owner to say that, 
Wow. Shocking. Um, how will all the illegal streaming of pay-per-views impact the UFC's TV deal? Does it mean more good events for free cable? Again, I don't think it's a piracy issue by itself that will determine this. Um, is the culture of paying for pay-per-view changing? Last question on this. People only pay for the stars or want it all for free cable? Yes. I think the days of being able to say we can do one pay-per-view a month and without oversaturating demand get a decent return, I think those days are over. Now, what that number should be, I don't know. But you need to create something in a package deal where people can get it relatively easily without a significant barrier to entry. And, uh, you know, WWE was ahead of the game with the network. The UFC needs to catch up desperately. But, yes, generally speaking, I feel like that culture is going away. Okay, thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Thumbs up to all of you out there for watching. Thank you so much. Please give this video a thumbs up. Subscribe to MMA Fighting below. And there will be an MMA beat tomorrow. And, um, yeah, all kinds of good stuff down the pipeline. So appreciate you guys watching. Until next time, stay frosty, donkeys.